podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Wider Goals, a podcast that explores how the tenets of conscious capitalism can engage with the superpower of sport to create a better world for all. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and for me, as a big fan of his work and writing, there could only be one guest for episode one. Jason Stockwood grew up in the 1970s in a single-parent family on a council estate in Grimsby, a once-thriving port on the east coast of England. Two decades earlier, the town's docks harboured the world's biggest fishing fleet, but the 70s saw the final days of its decline. The smokehouses left cold and empty, the trawlers discarded to rot on the quays, along with the pride and purpose of a generation of fishermen. Against this common British backdrop of industrial demise, a period when traditional notions of masculinity turned toxic, Jason was raised by his mother, along with his three brothers, all with different fathers. And at the age of 18, he left his hometown in search of a more meaningful life. Amongst other places, that journey would lead him to living on a kibbutz, an experience he discusses in this podcast, which was recorded in the summer before the shocking events of this last week. Our hearts go out to anyone who's been affected by the ongoing conflict in Israel and Gaza. From there, Jason returned to the UK to study for a degree in philosophy in Bolton, giving him a unique perspective on leadership and business culture, which flourished when he followed the bright lights of London and rose quickly during the dot-com boom from call centre operative to, in his words, accidental CEO. Voted the UK's best leader by the Sunday Times in 2016, Jason is now a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford, a B Corp trustee, a columnist for the Guardian newspaper, an author, and crucially for the purpose of this podcast, co-owner of his beloved Grimsby Town Football Club, the focus of the spiritual and sporting revival of his hometown. This is Wider Goals, brought to you by Project Sport with Jason Stockwood. Jason, thank you so much, first of all, for welcoming us into your home. Absolute pleasure. Nice, great to have you here. Uh, I want to get straight into, into Grimsby Town, first of all, before we look back on some of the other stuff. Um, when you invested in it back in 2021, mm-hmm. uh, you described the investment as the perfect counterweight to the ownership model of the Super League teams, which was obviously a reference to the attempted breakaway at the time of 12 teams from England, Italy and Spain. Uh, which you went on to describe as a paradigmatic example of distorted capitalism, where profit motives and dividend payments are regarded as the only measure of success. So for you, going into Grimsby, what is the measure of success there? That's a lot of words, wasn't it, in there? So it must have been a a day where I was um, into my own ideas. Um, Well, there's a couple of things, really. So one for us, it's definitely about how we improve the status of the football club on the pitch. So I think we we understand that our our license to do anything that we want to do in the community comes from improving the football. So I think that's a really easy, easy measure is do we look like we're making progress up the league table with the infrastructure that we're putting in, with the teams beyond the first team, with the academy, with the women's team. So I think there are some really clear, ostensible measures which will show we're making some progress. And it won't be linear. It will be up and down, that's life. You know, it'll be up a bit, down a bit, sideways a bit. And they're really obvious. Um, Second thing, um, it will be, you know, are we, do we represent, and this is slightly more um, qualitative, do we represent 
a bigger share in the hearts and minds of people in Grimsby in a positive way. So I often talk about, like, would love a new generation of fans to think about the club and the part of their own identity the club represents as a positive force in their lives. Now, again, you could argue what that measure is, but, you know, there's something that you can feel about how people are responding. I had a, I had a CEO from another football club who comes to Grimsby who said he recognised the number of shirts kids were wearing had gone up exponentially. I thought that was a quite a nice from someone to come and give us that feedback. And then the third thing is, is something that we're working on at the moment, which is about community impacts. So what is the, you know, the potential of a football club to be helpful in some of the really large structural societal problems that we've got, whether that is mental health, whether that's male suicide, whether that's obesity, whether, you know, the, the listed can go on ad nauseum. But it feels like, and this is you know, in the first couple of years of ownership, that there's a lot of opportunity for the badge and for a football club to open up spaces for people to have quite difficult discussions about you know where we are as a country, as a society. Um, so that that's the, that's the I was going to say that's a short answer, but it wasn't a short answer. But that's the potted answer. We're actually working on that question at the moment, which is we had a three year plan when we came in, which was to validate some of these ideas because we were complete novices, you know, three years ago or two and a half years ago. And so now we're working on a ten year strategy, which builds out more ostensible measures for that success. Um, um, and I think there's something in those three domains that will be part of the the, the measurements that we're kind of set up for ourselves. Okay, so is that ten year plan come as a result of things that you've noticed, feedback that yeah. you've had over these these past couple of years? Yeah, definitely. So, so I think we had a we, we thought we you know we could inf- we could influence fairly through brute force the culture of the organisation, knowing how Andrew and I want to run organisations, the infrastructure, so the lack of spending infrastructure. And then on the playing side, right, by just spending a bit more and a bit more quality, uh, and not necessarily in that order, by the way, but we definitely thought there was something about those three things. And so I think we've, we've, we've validated that thesis and we've had... Um, we're pleased with the success, you know, getting promoted out of the National League at first chance. The FA Cup run first time since 1939. We've got to the quarterfinals. Best league position in 20 years. That shows that that's a decent data point that the things that we thought we could do were making reasonable progress on. And then now what we're trying to do is think about, you know, the ambition and the long-term thinking with the data and the understanding we've got of football now. Mm. You know, one of the myths that I really, really rail against, the idea that football is different or people often say in football clubs, that's how it's done because it's football. Um, That's bullshit. You know, quite frankly, it's um, the, 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 the characteristics of football are the same. The nuances can be different. So having fans and people who have invested their lives into supporting a club, that's a different weight and carries a different obligation. But ultimately, they can be run. They are unlike businesses in one way, in which is that most of them aren't viable. You know, actually, they're business-like, but they're not businesses because most of them would be shut down automatically. They wouldn't be investable. But um, what we know now is that the disciplines of running organisations, thinking long-term, creating a process and structure that helps you make decisions with good instincts and intuition and heart and soul, we think that's a model for success. And you can see that, right? You can see it in Luton. You can see it in Plymouth. The clubs that have done that, um, you know, are, are inspirations to us as well. So you know... You've got to have a plan, but you haven't got to get married to that as well in a way that just doesn't allow you some flexibility. But the best businesses I've seen throughout my career are ones that are executing on a clear plan, but also with heart and soul in there as well. 
When did you start to make that realisation, Jason? You had a long, successful career in business, in capitalist structures, mm -hmm. which obviously do a lot of good. But you referred to this idea of distorted cap capitalism. When did you sort of start to get an idea of that? And when did you start to feel uncomfortable with that idea? Yeah, that's an amazing question. So uh, there were a couple of really clear instances for me. So one, um, I talked to my kids about this, like growing up, growing up skin and growing up on a council estate, you just don't have the mental models that a lot of people are brought up with. So one is really, I'll tell this to anyone that'll listen, which is no one makes any monies in salaries. So, you know, and, and poor people don't know this. We aren't told this, right? Which is you get well paid for a job, you keep going up the salary structures and you think that's great because you're getting more and more money. But the real wealth is created in equity and creating value in a business that can be sold or recapitalised at some point. And no one teaches that. If you're a kid from a council state in Grimsby, no, there's no economics lesson that tells you that. So when I sort of realised that, I was like, oh, okay, um, I can work for the next 50 years and have a decent house and maybe pay off my mortgage. But if you want to do something really interesting and make the money that allows you freedom to really have the choices in your life, no one who is paid a salary does that. Maybe some bankers or maybe some, you know, in, in the in, in the really distorted echelons of capitalism. But understanding that, so when I started to think about that and read about that in my late 20s, that was a light bulb moment. Second moment was um, I, I used to believe, and I don't know where this came from, I had this limiting thought that the people running businesses were the smartest people. And I remember walking to businesses which remained nameless for obvious reasons and thinking that the boss was a bit of a dick. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And I, and I just I thought, oh, I can do what he's doing. And, I, and actually, that was a, I'd never knew anyone that had run a business until that point. And then there's loads of others. But the, the third one was um, when I did my first private equity transaction, um, there's, you, you know, there's, there's maybe eight lawyers and there was a room full of maybe 20 advisors. Uh, and I came in one day and they were really excited. And the star were... Um, you know, this was sort of seven seven digit numbers that people were making personally. And they said to me, oh, this is great news. We found out a way you pay no tax on this transaction. And I, I said to them genuinely, I was like, where's that a good idea? If the CEOs are paying no tax on transactions, where where do things get funded? You know, like nurses. And, mm. and they said to me, oh, you're the first person in 26 years to ask that question without just going, yeah, just put it in offshore or set it up in a complicated tax arrangement. And I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying, I'm saying, just like genuine for me, those are serious questions about society. Right? If the richest people aren't paying their fair share of tax and yet the tax burden on the lowest paid is completely constrained, you cannot, you haven't got tax advisors if you're on the lowest tax band, right? You haven't got. Mm -hmm. So I was like, and it was a genuine question for me. And, um, and so I started to think through the idea how the wealthiest people I know pay the lowest marginal tax rates. And I was like, it's just not fair. Mm. It's just not fair. And then because I'd been rooted, my education was rooted and I did a degree in philosophy in my 20s when I started to educate myself, I started to look back into systems of justice. Like I'm a big fan of the work of a philosopher called John Rawls that wrote um, a book called A Theory of Justice. And yeah, it just society doesn't function if we have massive inequalities, that's it's simple. And so, yeah, sorry, that's a rambling answer to the question, but I could tell you a hundred other stories where I, I notice it and I'm alert to it now that um, equality is not the objective for society. We all have different talents and means and ways of expressing that, but fairness should be. Mm. You know, I don't mind people being astronomically rich if they've earned it, they've worked for it and it's fair, but in a system where inequality is becoming embedded in our society, 
that's really dangerous for our democracy. Mm. When people don't think the economy's working for them, they don't think democracy's working for them. And we're seeing some of that, mm. and that is a zero-sum game. And we've got quite complacent about how safe our society is, but it's, re it's a risk mm. because we've had a long period of peace and history. Um, so fairness matters to me as a philosophical concept and a societal concept that makes it function and work, not just because it's high-minded or moral personally. It's about people need to feel that. So, And I've got, I can evidence that in my... Because I'm a kid who grew up skin and has been in those rooms in, you know, in, in Silicon Valley or in New York or in Tel Aviv where wealth is really, really... Um, and capital capitalism really works. I've been in both of those rooms and... Um, yeah, it needs to be fair at both ends of that spectrum, I think. So clearly when you're in those rooms, you're thinking of, or you're questioning yourself and the other people in that room, questions that are natural to you that wouldn't be natural to them. I like the way that in your um, Guardian columns, you often use books as a starting point mm -hmm. for, for a conversation or a topic. It's almost like a, having a book review with a bit more depth to it. Um, and one of those is uh, The Second Mountain, uh, which starts off discussing, um, by, by David Brooks, start, starts off discussing the moral ecology of uh, the surroundings that we grow up in uh, in our earliest years. Tell us a little bit more about that because all of these, when you get into these rooms at, the, at this point of your life, these values presumably have been put into a, a very early, yeah. early point of your life. Yeah, look, uh, there's, I, I really like that you picked up on that. So, I, look, I, I didn't start reading properly in my twenties. So, for me, my kids, I'm, I'm maniacal about it. It's like a, it's like a superpower. When people show you that there's, there's a whole world of thinking and ideas you can access at any point throughout history. Like, I just don't get why people don't think about reading. You know, and I know. So, I, I discovered it myself. But the idea that you could pick up, you know, a New York Times best-selling writer like David Brooks and his lifetime of learning and learn from that. It's just magical to me. It still is to this day. So for me, yeah, look, I read incessantly and I love it and I, I try and imbue that in my kids. But it's, um, yeah, you have an operating system, don't you, that you're brought up in and that's both the system of your environment, your parenting, the people around you, the role models and, and the time also, the ideologies you've been brought up in as well. And I think for me, it's worked. It's worked tremendously. Well, it wasn't, you know, it, on paper, it wasn't an ideal. Child, you know, single parent family. I've got three brothers. Um, all got different dads. Um, we were skinned, councillor state house, free school meals. You know, a whole kit and caboodle. But like, it served me really well because it was a loving environment. It was a community where no one was allowed to be better than anybody else. And I quite like that. The Danish have this a bit, and it's limiting in some ways. Uh, it's called Janteloven, I think, with this idea that we're all the same. And that serves as well. But also, it, it, the environment I was brought in, I needed a lot of grit and, you know, and um, resilience just because it was a relatively tough environment. And so going into work, when I found myself in the work environments, I found the fact that genuinely whoever I work with, I feel the same as them. I know I've got skills and talents that I can utilise, mm. but I completely respect and need other people around me. And I've always enjoyed that. So that's a kind of socialism, right? The way I was brought up was in a sort of socialist environment and I'm a product of that. And yet I love the capitalism, the idea that if you want to work a little bit harder than everybody else and graft and do a bit more and have courage of your convictions and take risks, you can create value. I like that. But it comes back to that earlier point around it's got to be fair as well. Mm. And it's not got to be at the expense of someone else. The idea of, you know, zero-sum game where someone has to lose if you win, I don't like that. The world can't operate on that mm. basis. So... I'm competitive, but I'd rather I'd rather lose beautifully than win ugly. Mm. You know, that whole thing around how you play the game matters to me. Long-term objectives and values matter to me. 
I actually believe that's a better way of winning. It sets you up for winning. And there's a great, I mean, I, I think I've wrote about this, but I met um, Dr. Pippa Grange last year. I know you read her books, her book Fearless, and I met her in Ghana, which is a long story. But um, yeah, this idea of um, winning deep, you know, when you see a lot of sportsmen that get there and they win accolades, but it's hollow to them because they haven't thought about the process or why they're doing it or who they're doing it for. And um, and I love that idea in, in Pippa's writing about you can lose and still win deep. Mm. You know, so we, you know, we lost in the, you know, in the in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, but it's one of those magical moments of my life. Thinking, looking at our fans applauding the players and they stayed around for 50 minutes singing and we lost that game. So in all intents and purposes, we were the losers. But it was the biggest joyful day of winning mm. probably in the club's history in some way. So there's something about how you win that's important to me as well. But that's, um, yeah, and who knows, you unravel your past and you try and tell this linear story, but life's more complicated than that as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But it, it's interesting to see how those values that were instilled at such an early age start to come out you know after the amount of professional success you've, you've had and I'm also really interested to know how you can translate that to sport and I might just come on to that in a moment or two but before we move on from kind of your upbringing and your childhood you mentioned there about um having three different brothers you all got different fathers presumably your father wasn't around no. I don't know who he is I actually don't know who he is oh really to this day still yeah so it's a mystery for me still is that in a way a liberating thing as a child, to not have that point of reference that you have certain standards and behaviours that you have to match or, or yeah. feel like you have to match and live up to. I love that. You know, I've often thought that, that um, when I see people who've come from traditional, in inverted commas, families, mum and dad, successful middle class maybe, where dad's been successful, mum's been successful, and the, the obligation and the pressure that puts on people, I worry about it with my kids, you know, and I'll say to them, I couldn't love you any more than I love you now. What you do with your life is up to you. Mm. And whatever you do with your life is up to you. But you have no pressure to do the things I've done or not do the things I've done. And so for me, but I've seen it again and again with people that have had those sort of traditional upbringings where the pressure's immense. Yeah. And often it's um, it's the things that aren't stated within families that can create, you know, as much psychological tension and problems for people, right? Mm. People have had loving parents that wanting to, you know, please their mums and dads, you know. So... My son, when he was about eight, it was one of the most profound things I've ever heard from anyone. But we were talking. I was quite anxious to not tell them that I don't know who my dad is because it's, it's their history as well. Right? Mm. And my daughter was drawing a family tree at school. And um, my mum's last husband, she just drew as my dad. And I said, oh, just really casually, I said to her, um, oh, he's not my dad. And she went, who is? And I went, oh, I don't know. And she went, oh, that's sad for you, dad. And then she was like, pass me the ketchup or something. And it was like, I'd been five years thinking about how I would frame that conversation. And to her, it was the most beautiful, matter-of-fact thing. And the response was, it was sad for me. Mm. And my kids have been really open with them about this. And my son said something a few days later, which is just, I don't know whether he meant it, actually, when I look back on it, because it was so profound. But he said to me, oh, do you think your disadvantages growing up are your advantages in your life, dad? that you've used them, and I was, which is exactly your question, right? And I was like, he was seven at the time when he asked wow. me that. And I was like, I was like, totally, right? As long as you're not encumbered. And there were some things that weren't great that I've had to work through about not having a dad around or not having, I was good at football, so not having someone watching me play sport. So I obsess about going to all my kids' games. Mm -hmm. Probably not healthy sometimes, because I want to be there and I know that I'm just physically there. But like once I'd worked through that stuff, I've had no pressure to do anything in my life apart from the pressure I put myself 
Like my mum still thinks I've got a psychology degree because she can't get her head around what philosophy is. <laughs> you know, so she's got no, and like getting a job was an achievement in my family. You know, yeah. and all my brothers have had success in their own way, which is beautiful. So. The, the, you know, for us, it's work that we've just followed our passions and I've just been able to go, oh, that hasn't worked for me. So I travelled for five years when I left school, you know, and I was on the kibbutz in Israel, I was a holiday rep, I worked at Disney World and I studied philosophy because I was into it. Like, no one would advise you to study philosophy as a vocation in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But I had no, I just did stuff and it's just been beautiful for me that every time I've been curious about something, I've just done it and I've taken risks because there's no downside case for me. Like, I've been skinned and I survived it and it was all right and my life was okay. Mm. And my wife and I talk about this a lot, which is we don't obsess about money and stuff, even though we've got a beautiful life and I'm really privileged and fortunate. But we know the risk taking on Grinsby Town, my wife actually talked me into it. She's like, oh, you know, if it all goes to shit, we'll buy a two-bed flat somewhere and we'll go and live there. And, and I know that that's not just her saying that. I know we'd be as happy. And so there's something about being liberated from that. We know that the stuff that we've accumulated and the success that we've had doesn't define you. Mm. you know, the future will define you, you know. So, and, you know, it took, it took me a number of years and therapy and coaches and mm. reading to work that stuff out, but it, I'm not encumbered by it. And so it allows me to take risks because, you know, I'm not scared of failing. And that's the, big, that's the biggest thing. I've no fear of that stuff because you know, I grew up in an environment where we had, we had bugger all, basically. So, yeah, it's a really, really insightful question because I think, you know, people look at these, these sort of stories and they go, oh, it's hard luck and it's grit. But actually, it's the opposite. It's like you're just not scared of downside because mm. it's been shit. And, it's, you, 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 you know, we grew up with ice. I was talking about I'm scared of... One of the things I used to talk about, like my kids, was I was obsessed about being warm because I remember being cold as a kid a lot and we had ice inside the winds in our house. So we always had food, but I remember being cold a lot. So, like, when you think about the material, you know, the material comfort that we have as a society now, like, you know, it's never, I'm never going to get down to that level again. So my baseline has been reset and it allows me to completely take chances on stuff. So that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Well, it resonates with me a little bit. You know, my experience was different to yours, but um, my my father was around when, you know, in in my early years, but he was quite conservative he was quite I wouldn't say he was particularly strict he was a policeman he had mm. high standards and he was quite a, an alpha male I suppose yeah. that I felt like I had to live up to and then at 18 he left the family home he was quite acrimonious it was very difficult but in time I found it actually liberating and I felt that sense yeah. of well actually I don't have to do what what he wants me to do yeah. anymore I can do what I want I don't have to listen to him and it's that thing you, where you mentioned before about looking up to CEOs thinking well they must know everything this this is the way it's done and yeah. it's, I think when you're a kid you look up to adults as well and you think they know everything they must be right and then you you grow up and realise what, what a great realisation to have that because there's so many people that are damaged by splits or their past and you know you know, you know recognising the stuff that is hurtful and you know but as a kid if you can work past that and through it mm. A lot of people don't get that chance, so you can read your way to that. You can get therapy or coaches and stuff. But there's there's a couple of things I say to my kids. You know, I've said that thing about like I can't love them any more than I do. Like my whole heart is committed to them. So whatever they choose doing that is up to them. Mm-hmm. I will love them exactly the same way. But there's also something about I say to them, look. I tell them I love them every day. I'm like, that's the thing that having a baseline in your life, and we know this, right, of that 
you loved, whoever that is by or whatever it is by, and you have someone that's thinking about you when you're not there. Mm. So I tell them every single day and we joke about it. And the other thing I tell them every day is when they leave this for school, I tell them to ask good questions. I say, don't care about your grades, I care about you asking good questions because I've been talking about this for 14 years now. Mm. The answers will be in technology, answers will be in AI for most of the things that we think are important in our education now. Mm. So the ability to be philosophical and frame questions and think curiously about the world is the superpower that humans have. And in the last couple of years, my kids do their homework on ChatGPT now. And like the school said, look, you shouldn't do it. And I'm like, absolutely, they should do it because these are tools that are going to be used in the same way, you know, the internet in the 90s. So it's going to be around us all the time. So their ability to love and connect and be part of something, teams, and ask questions is going to be what humans are good for and what they need to be to be happy, I think, Mm. because it's all about connectivity and relationships ultimately. Not about school grades and that stuff will happen, like money happens if you commit yourself to stuff. But being good people and thinking about relationships is what will stand them in good stead, I think. Um, There's so much to unpack there and so many routes we could go down. But overall, just thinking about the last few things that you said, I think the overriding message for me is um, heightened emotional intelligence and empathy. Empathy for people who don't have means because of, uh, of your upbringing, but also uh, we all know that generally speaking, females have higher levels of in- emotional intelligence than, than males do. And also travel is is a fundamental yeah. part of that. Seeing th- things from different perspectives, mm-hmm. living life as a minority, mm-hmm. and even being a minority in, in certain situations. How does that help you now? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Um... Yeah, the, the empathy stuff's interesting, right? Because I just think that if you... It was what I said before about relationships matter. I mean, the most profound thing about the Grimsby Football Club, by the way, for me personally, is reconnecting with people that I love. And I've sort of... My life's gone in a different direction. So a couple of mates that I knock around my brothers all the time. So the most rewarding thing is reaffirming those connections, those relationships, because that's the thing that matters. Ultimately, we know you can have... You know, there's ages and stages in life that you go through... But actually what matters at all stages is the quality of your relationships and connection to people, genuine connection to people. So there's that. um, I think, and this is where my education has helped and the reading has helped, right, is the understanding the myth of meritocracy, this idea that if you work hard, you will get on and life will, you know, reward you. It's just not true. Mm. Like the probability and, you know, of, 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 financial success or social success is massively correlated to your starting position in life and your network and your family and we know that and actually meritocracy the idea of them written about this was a was a satire written in 1958 by michael young and blair took it up as a and a lot i like about tony blair but this idea that work hard go to university get out it was a satire originally and we took it on as to be the reality that and that's part of why we've got this fractured society is that people who believe you have to leave to have a fulfilling life rather than community and being rooted in a place so you know just understanding that which is you know what you can't do is change your starting position in life, but recognising the some of the barriers and some of the inequalities that we can break down, and universities are doing a good job in that now, particularly the elite universities, that are allowing people... You know, I read at the weekend about, um, you know, to get into Oxford now, they'll take a kid who gets seven... If, if someone gets seven GCSEs in a tough school, that's a, worth a lot more than a, a kid going to a private school getting 10, you know, because the relative work that needs to be... And Oxford and Cambridge are doing this now, which is amazing. 
Um, but actually, within that as well, we realised that success in life isn't just about money, fame, status. It's about the quality of relationships and the depth of your relationships and how you conduct yourself, live to your own values. Mm. And that's something everyone can do. Right? And so, so there's something in how, as a society, we measure success. And the travel gives you that right. When you go around the world and you see, you see people and communities that might not have the material wealth that we have in some of the Western countries, certainly in the UK, you realise that there's both a positive and a negative in terms of those environments, you know, positive sometimes, without romanticising it. You sometimes think that some of the things that we forgot about connection and family and... You know, I lived in London for over 20 years and didn't know my neighbours and people were transient and, you know, I look back on that. It's amazing to me, actually, that, mm -hmm. you know, we lived, particularly when our kids were young, without any family around or without, you know, and everyone's trying to work and grind their careers out. But actually... When you know the most important thing is your family and your kids, you know, we moved up north to be near grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and the richness of that life, whereas we're sold this myth that, you know, materiality and this idea of success being where you get to in your career. But, like, you see it now with people older that have retired, you know, they're... There's only so much you can rest on your laurels of your career, but your family and your connections and how your life's been enriched in other ways are the things that matter. And we, and we know that on a really fundamental level. We've forgotten it, I think. Yeah. So the sooner we can realise that. So, yeah, travel, just communities that I've been to around... The, I lived on a kibbutz, which is the most basic. It is a pure socialist idea where you work, there's no money exchanges, you get everything provided on a low baseline and probably the happiest I've ever been, you know, where money wasn't involved, but you know, I was working hard and met young people and just interested in the history of it, you know. But, um, you know, so I think just seeing that is a great leveller, and but it was fun as well. I'd be lying to you, it was just because I was curious and I was fun and, you know, I didn't have any, you know, I was carefree again so I could go and do this stuff mm. without the obligations that come with that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another uh, book that you, you referenced in one of your columns, which is The Descent of Man by Grayson Perry. And he quotes the psychologists, uh, Robert Brannan and, and Deborah Davis' description of four basic components of traditional masculinity, right? <laughs> and I'm sure people will be able to relate to this if they're into sport. Well, whatever you're into. So, mm -hmm. so number one is no sissy stuff. Um, and there's an interesting story there about the history of the colour pink mm -hmm. related to that. The second thing is the big wheel, uh, which is men's quest for uh, success and status. Mm -hmm. The third one is the sturdy oak, so men's air of toughness or confidence and self-reliance, especially in a crisis. And number four is give them hell, which is the acceptability of violence, aggression and daring in behaviour. Now, as a footballer, since I was a small child, I can relate to all of these. And I was encouraged as a, as a kid, especially as a small kid, by my dad and by youth coaches um, to exude all of these traits, especially the last one. And I'm aware that I probably do check myself against them still um, to this day. So in an environment such as professional football, where all of these traits are present on the uh, football pitch, in the boardroom, yeah. I assume. Which is, which not, is in still board, not, not in our boardroom. Not in your boardroom, yeah, I'm yeah. sure, but in a lot of boardrooms which are male-dominated yeah. and, uh, and obviously in the terraces and the grandstands yeah. as well. How do you try to change that culture and address those things. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think the first thing is being open-minded to um, the idea of what works and what doesn't work. Well, that's the other thing, yeah. is, is how appropriate yeah. is it actually to, to change that? So what, what I'm trying not to do is try and impose, you know, my 
biases, my ideological frameworks on something just because it's mine. Yeah. And that's really hard because you, you do show up in certain ways. But, you know, fascinating conversations with, you know, with Paul, our manager, about, you know, that he's a really deeply thoughtful, caring individual. Um, but like has grown up in an environment which is 20, 20 years of being a pro footballer mm. in Rotherham. And so we're just having this really great discussion, I think, about what works and what doesn't work. I think that's the question. The question that I always think about is what serves us um, and what serves us in terms of becoming better people, better organisations. And I do strongly believe that those are outdated and outmoded and don't create high performance in the way that endures. So I think, you know, um, there's, there's, a, there's a bit in that book that I think, you know, that I think we talked about when we first met, which is there's a statement that really was like a light bulb moment for me around um, places that have had industrial decline, like Grimsby or, you know, like the mining places in Yorkshire or, or wherever, actually, shipyards. You know, the, the men in particular worked in really tough environments. And so to survive that and to, it, it, that served their survival instincts, you had to be tough. And that spilled out into the pubs and fighting and physicality being, all those things being prioritised. And then Grayson Perry wrote this wonderful passage and I've, I've got it like like etched in my mind, which is, you know, those things went away, those industries went away, but it was a generation, that's probably my generation, was still brought up with those parents who acted that way. And it, but, but it was nothing to hang on to. They weren't relevant anymore. They didn't serve us anymore. So I remember, like, trying to be hard as a character. Like, in Grimsby growing up, one of the characteristics, maybe because I didn't have great role models, male role models, but I remember having a, a fight once and coming home and, like, my nose was blooded and stuff and my stepdad was like, all he said was, did you win? And actually what I wanted was a hug and a kiss and to be told I was scared, I'd been in a fight, I didn't like it. And he was like, did you win? And I was like, yeah. I'm not sure I did, by the way. <laughs> but in that moment I went, yeah. And he was like, that's all that counts. And then just probably fucked off to another room and had a drink. And I remember at the time I'd been, and that was like, and I, and I followed that through right, into my late teens, early 20s, where being physical and trying to look hard in front of people and, you know, the, the, the characteristics of I mean, you're, standing your round was a thing, right? Like the worst, the worst aberration of your moral character was not, did you do something criminal? It was like, did you, did you not buy a round, you know, when it was your turn? Yeah. And it's amazing, like the, the hierarchies and stuff. But, you know, if you roll backwards 30 years, those are the characteristics that meant we can trust each other and that, you know, if, if it gets physical, which it often did in the 40s, 50s, whatever, then this is my crew and this is my tribe. But like, like, I want my kids to feel loved and I want them to be resilient and be physical when they need to, but not lead with that. You know, we know that, you know, there's so much data and there's so much evidence now that people don't want leaders that, you know, in, in certain moments you've got to show resolve and resilience and grit. My wife always said, you know, that's why I think I've had a bit of success that I've got that in me. Like, I don't tolerate certain behaviours and it shows up for me maybe aggressively sometimes but like that's one part of my character i can utilize that served me well i look for people that got a rod of steel in them that when it gets hard they show up and want to dig in and show toughness and but not in a physical way mm. and so 
the question for me is like, does it serve us? Does it serve us in being better people, in feeling fulfilled, feeling like we're making conscious decisions about how we want to live our lives? And a lot of these characteristics work on us, characteristics they work on us. We're not thinking about them. So if you're choosing to try and be hard and you think, actually, I want to be a UFC boxer or I want to be, you know, whatever, then making a deliberate choice about these behaviours being the ones you want to lead with because it's fulfilling a vision of your life that you have for yourself. You can argue whether that's good or bad. But for most of us, toughness and hardness and emotional distance and, you know, doesn't serve us in feeling fulfilled and happy and content in our lives. And we know that we can evidence that now because of all the things that we understand about being human. So, yeah, it's it's amazing that a lot of people, and I see it now, and this is why we've got a crisis in masculinity in many ways. This is why male suicide rates are at an all-time high, is because people have this system of thinking which is about trying to look tough and trying to look like you're coping all the time. And, you know, there's there's... There's no reason that that should be the case, that we all suffer, we all struggle, we're all vulnerable, we all often don't know, we all carry fear and we're scared about stuff, all of us. So the ability to share that and recognise that and try and solve it is a way that's both manage it, and that's a human condition. And it's a good thing, by the way, we need fear in our lives, you know, if we didn't have that. I always thought that brand no fear was a bad idea. You need some fear in your life to calibrate against making bad decisions. But yeah, stay alive. Yeah, stay alive, right? <laughs> so but but the idea that that just just being hard and distant and shouty and argumentative is something that would encourage people to want to be with you yeah. and perform for you. You know, the best leaders that we see today have that emotional intelligence. They have this toughness as well that's needed, you know, resilience and just looking like they're standing up for their people. But most people want love and most people want connection, want respect in there as well. So it's not about being soft. It's not about suddenly being a hippie commune where people do what they like. The business that I've run have had a resilience and a toughness to them that doesn't suffer people that don't perform. You know, we moved people on quickly. But if you step into a conversation and perform, we want you to thrive in whatever that means for you. And that means feeling respected and loved and having compassion in there as well. I think there's something we understand about that now. But growing up the way we probably grew up, it was about looking hard and showing that you wasn't scared and tough men don't cry and tough men don't show emotions. And it's just bullshit. And we know we know that's not true now. But importantly, it doesn't serve us as individuals. But having access to that range of emotions enriches our lives and allows us to live fully as parents, as husbands, you know, as friends to people. Whereas if we're just trying to look hard, it, it, it shrinks our world to the sort of the size and the hardness of, a, of our hearts that aren't expressive. And I think there's something that, that we know about that now. Yeah. I guess also then we're judging ourselves on metrics that we might fall short on and then f- and, and feel a lack of purpose and a, and, um, a sense of failure. Um, yeah. I just don't know. It's like, I just, I'm, what, the reason, one of the reasons I left Grimsby is like, you know, it was about those characteristics and I just didn't feel like it fitted me. I felt like there was a dissonance in my world, which is I was trying to look hard and trying to be, you know, uh, really ultra masculine and it just didn't resonate for me. And interestingly, I went away traveling and I found that I loved reading and I love poetry and I love philosophy. Like I wasn't having those conversations in Grimsby. Like if I turned up to the pub and I'd sort of talked about the second mountain or the fact that I loved the writing of Simon Armitage, I probably would have got a punch, probably deservedly. <laughs> you know, in those conversations. But, but you know what I mean? It was like I had to find an environment. And then when I look back on 
the important bit is closing the circle in these conversations. I look back on the wonderful things about being from my town, the sense of humour, the dark humour, the resilience, the toughness that shows up with love. Like, like it's... And it's hard to describe. I brought some people from London up a couple of years ago and we're talking about politics. I was like, people in this town don't care about things that you're talking about. I was like, but don't take that for an ignorance or a lack of thoughtfulness. It's just that, you know, the community, and and I'm not over-romanticising that because I'm in that community and I'm part of it. There is a toughness and there's a resilience, but there's an intelligence to it as well. And so it's not about the past was awful the future is progressive. It's about making sure we dip back into what worked for us in those communities. There's a spirit, there's a tightness, there's an identity that's really powerful that we've sort of forgotten as well. And so, you know, when we talk about the things that were wrong about that masculinity, what we have in Grimsby is a matriarchy, quite frankly, really strong women. When the men were off doing these bullshit things, being away at sea, coming home, being drunk, a lot of physical violence in the home as well. We have incredibly strong women who held the community together. They're still there mm-hmm. and are showing up in community projects and running the big, big, you know, big practical um, positive initiatives that are happening in the town. It's largely women-led. So it's allowing men back into that space with their full emotions to work as partners and equals to women. But actually, women in places like this have been running the show probably for 100 years, but men think they have been. So it's really interesting in just recalibrating them to go, we're partners in this together, you know, rather... And this is why we've got the deficit in mental health for men, is because we've got this archetype of toughness providing, rather than going, actually, we're just partners in our relationships in our lives together. And if you get to that point, you know, you don't bear the responsibility and the shame of maybe not doing that singularly, which is what it used to be. Yeah. It's amazing, actually, as you talk, how tied you are to the identity of the town that you're from. We talked about that moral ecology before and the legacy of that within within you and how you behave, but also the legacy that exists within the town are, are actually very similar in terms of, as your son put it, um, the disadvantages being advantages now. Close community, funny people, strong people, direct you know, all the things that people try and talk about as positives have come out from a, you know, a sort of gallows type humour, which is, look, it's a town that's tilted its narrative to the past for too long. It's mm-hmm. wedded to the fish names. That went away in the 70s and we still talk about it. So I think if we can take the positive, the strength of the community, and what we're trying to do is point it towards the future in a way that articulates a vision that we, we we articulate together. What do we want for the town and for kids? And that's why we're trying to build the onside youth zone in the town. It's why we're trying to restate the values of the football club. And we're building this other project called Our Future, which I'm involved with, with a phenomenal social entrepreneur called Emily Bolton. But it's taking the best things of the town that have always existed, rather than what often happens through centralised government or through philanthropy, is like people turn up and do something to a place. And it never works because it's it's someone else's idea. Well, you, if you show up as a as a partner in trying to create something, then we think magic can happen and orientate to sort of a more hopeful future. But it's not disregarding the past. It's saying what are the things that we want to bring with us, and what are the things like this toxic masculinity that we want to just jettison and say it's not serving us. And so it's about it's about having that continuum into the stuff that is really valuable that we've sort of lost sight of, yeah. but at the same time recognizing that we need to change and we need to reevaluate what's important to us bringing it back to sport and bringing it back to Grimsby Town in particular do you look to develop that within an organization or do you look to recruit for that how do you go about and obviously there will be resistance in and around Mm -hmm. uh, the club 
to that as well. I mean, I've, I've seen message boards and, and comments on your Twitter feed yeah. saying, complaining that you're woke and that, you know, actually it's a disconnect with the values that they see. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's just having a, to be an open mind to that dialogue. I, I've got no monopoly on the truth or what's right. I've got a view of the world that I'm interested in exploring with people genuinely. Like, um, quick story. So when we came in, one of the things that really worried me was um, booing taking the knee. And like every instance he goes, oh, a bunch of racist people booing the knee. And so what um, what I did was I put a shout on Twitter, like, I'd love to talk to someone that boos, just like completely anonymously get in touch. And the guy got in touch and actually what it was, and I was frightened actually, I was a bit nervous. I was like, what if he's just a massive racist and like, and I'm having a chat to someone who's a member of the NF or something. I was like, God, I won't end well. But, but I was like, do you know what? I've got, I've got to not hold my own views to... Um, too closely as well. I've got to be really careful that I've got a worldview that may or may not be right. And so um, this guy had an amazing, um, completely logical narrative about it's being taken over by super left Marxist organisations. So if you're booing it, you're actually supporting ultra left wing, which is as bad as... And I was like, wow, you know, what a thoughtful... And so for me, there's something about... You know, I've always said to my kids, I'm like, like, listen to everyone's views and then make your own mind up about it, but make sure you're listening. Don't just talk to people that share your background or your views because you'll never move your thinking on. So I try and do that. And so online's good for that as well. It's like I get perspectives sometimes. I go, yeah, I thought that. Or genuinely, my, my biases are showing up. But occasionally, it's just a bunch of knobheads. So I use the mute button quite a lot now. Like Some people, you have to think about their worldview and they're just shouting about what, their background and their biases and once you see a pattern of that you're like we're never going to meet and have a conversation because you're so embedded into how you see the world and the injustice you see that you're not prepared to recognize that you might have got it a bit wrong and that's the thing that's really worked for me in my in my own personal experience is going like one of my really good friends in the u.s is a private equity investor but like political spectrum completely different to me very religious and i love speaking to him because mm. I, I love him we've got a massive amount of respect for each other but his views on stuff are completely antithetical to how i see the world but i know i value his intellect i value his opinion i know his values mm. and so it's an amazing education for me to speak to someone who i respect and love that i don't share my views on and we need more people like that in our lives because mm. none of us have a perfect expression of what's right and wrong. Yeah. So, you know, surrounding yourself, people and being open to that, but also being resolute enough about what you care about yeah. to not take shit from people as well. Because yeah. if you do, if you open your mind of just to being completely subjective, then you're not executing anything. You, you blow with the winds. And I think it's been really clear about what matters to you, but open-minded enough to realise that you might be wrong as well. Yeah, and approaching those conversations from a point of empathy and yourself. Yeah. And it's amazing. But it's, and the biggest learning opportunities, I think, as well. So in, in football, what I'm saying is like, um, I'm just trying to be able... I, I know the things that we want to do will improve the organisation, but they're limited... But actually what we're being open-minded to is what is it about the world of football that works that we don't know that we can help receive and support whilst bringing new ideas to that to bring it on as well. Yeah. But recognising it's both. It's an art and a science. You know, there's so much that's chance about football. that. But if we can bring a bit more love and empathy alongside a bit more data and structure and thinking, which might sound counterintuitive, but bring all those things to a conversation. We think at best you can improve your probability of success. Yeah. There's no guarantee of that. But importantly, it'll be more enjoyable, it'll be more rewarding, it'll be more satisfying to everyone involved with it, rather than just um, believing that what we did in the past will, will be replicated in the future. Yeah. Um, well, that brings me to my final question, really, Jason, which is about the future and also uh, that 
um, concept of new ideas. So you have uh, 53 Degrees Capital, a tech investment firm. Um, what do you see as the link between what you can do in that space and what you can do with Grimsby Town Football Club and what we can look to achieve by merging those things through sport? But staying connected to, to purpose yeah. and those values. So I should, I should declare, like, I've become a passive investor. I was a very active investor um, in terms of being available for advice and stuff. But I've committed fully to the Greenspeed project. And I gave myself three years, which I'm two years in. So I haven't made a new investment. I made one, actually. That was just a buy. But, but, like, I've committed fully to doing this. So I also believe that you shouldn't play half-heartedly. So I had to dedicate nearly 100% of my time to Grimsby projects for the last two years and certainly for the next year until we reevaluate, am I being effective, am I being useful? Um, but the same things like I invest in things that are um, trying to change markets, but trying to change markets with a purpose. So something that doesn't just create economic value, it creates a social value as well. So all those businesses on there will make a lot of money, I'm convinced. Not all of them actually, that's not probable. Most of them I think are good bets. But they will all, even if we don't make a lot of money, they will all add social value. So that's a win straight away. Yeah. And the Grimsby project is that for me, which is it's a it's a terrible financial decision. If I was just looking at can I make money, it's, it's, we definitely won't make money. Um, but we're hopefully creating a lot of social value and sustainability that if we can set the football club and you know in our ambitious moments, if we can help change the narrative on the town, that would be the best thing I've ever done in my life and my career. Right? So it will be, it'll cost me money, it'll cost me time. But in terms of impact, it'll be amazing, right? So, um, yeah, so I'm doing, but it's all about purpose and all about social impact. And as long as we don't lose our shirts and end up living in that two-bed flat again too quickly, that'll be success, <laughs> right? But, but and, and so far, so good, you know. But, but for me personally, I'm learning a lot. I'm stretched by it. You know, I'm out of my comfort zone, which is where I want to live while I'm young and young enough and got energy still because I feel like I'm learning. Yeah. And so that's the best I can hope for. But, um, yeah, at the moment... Um, fully immersed in it, fully committed to it. And then, and then we'll evaluate, like I'm hopeful we can find someone that can do a better job. I mean, that's the, the, in every business we're involved with, you know, that your job as a CEO, your job as a leader, as an investor is to find someone better than you that can take it on. And so that's the, the big challenge for Andrew and I is, you know, how do we find someone that can, can take everything that we're doing and, and take it up a level. And you know, that's, that's the aspiration. Wonderful. I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. If you need it. Thank oh. you so much for everything, Jason, and for your time, your honesty and and um, yeah, and your commitment to to this uh, to this concept, I suppose. Enjoyed it, really enjoyed the conversation. Great questions in there. So, so thank you as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jason as much as I did. Check out the programme notes for links to recommended reading on the topics that we discussed and some of the books too. And make sure you subscribe for more episodes and content from Wider Goals, brought to you by Project Sport. Sports Social Podcast Network.